Hebrews chapter 1. Let's all read it together. Ready? God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he has appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person, and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. Let's pray. Father, we, we acknowledge you are mighty and powerful, and yet you also, O oh God, stepped into human flesh to become the Son of Man as well as the Son of God. And as we begin uh, this journey, through this very powerful and important book in your word, though all of them are, and there is not one of them that is not, we ask and pray for our eyes to be opened spiritually, our hearts to be softened, our spiritual man to receive that which you desire to say and to give to us today and in the weeks ahead. And these things we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Please be seated. I'm taking a seat this morning um, just to give the atmosphere a little bit more uh, sense of comfortableness. You can envision us being in a living room circled around uh, couches and chairs and, and talking about the book of Hebrews. I will occasionally take us to a couple of verses and whatnot, uh, but I want to begin this morning with some information that if you'd like to take notes, I, I encourage that. You always can go back online and, and resource the video or the information, but uh, there is something about the hand writing that helps the head remember. Uh, his name was Ingar Bergman. Unknown to me before I read about this, but he was a Swedish filmmaker quite some time ago, and he was wrestling with inspiration for a film. He walked into a, a big cathedral, and in that cathedral was, you know, stained glass windows. And in the sunlight of the morning, uh, the sun coming through one of those stained glass, beautiful stained glass windows, he looked up and he said to the stained glass, he said, God, speak to me, speak to me. And the stained glass remained silent. And he walked out of that church and back to his apartment and began to write the script for a widely acclaimed film called The Silence. And the theme of the film, The Silence, and the script that he wrote depicted the lives of people who were despairing, depressed, and wanted to hear from God, 
but God remained silent. His film begged the question, does God speak? The answer from our text and throughout the entire book of Hebrews is, yes, he does. We know critically this morning that God speaks predominantly in, in four ways. One of which is in creation around us. Johannes Kepler was the father of modern-day astronomy, not astrology, but astronomy, the study of the stars and the cosmos. And Johannes Kepler coined the word, he's the one who created the word satellite. He wrote a book called Planetary Law of Motion, and Kepler said this, If any astrologer is undevout, meaning a non-believer in God, that person is, is mad, is crazy. Kepler came to the realization that it's impossible to look at the glory of the cosmos and not see the necessity of a divine creator and a creation. The world in which we're sitting on and standing and seemingly holding still, this ball is spinning at over 100,000 miles per hour. The sun itself is spinning also at 67,000 miles per hour. And the planets in which we look and they seem to be still are moving at 450,000 miles per hour, and it's no wonder that at times our hair will stand on edge. But Kepler looks at this and he says there has to be order. God does indeed speak through creation. Psalm 19, perhaps you're familiar with it. The heavens declare the glory of God, and the firmament show his handiwork. Day unto day they utter speech. Night unto night they show knowledge. Psalm 19. God speaks through creation. And yet, the message of God speaking through creation can sometimes be uh, hard to understand or even possibly contradictory. And you say, why is that, Pastor Art? Well, in this creative globe that we live on, this created globe, we, we know that things are moving from a state of order to disorder. Uh, you would have no um, evolutionist uh, disagree with you. You would have no person who's way into let's all go green disagree with you. They're worried about the condition of the planet. Why? Because Things are going from a state of order to disorder. But more clearly, what we find in the book of Romans, chapter 8, verse 22, is that even creation itself is groaning for something different. Romans 8, 22, For we know that the whole creation groans and labors with birth pangs together even until now. Romans 8, verse 22. So, 
yes, God speaks of creation, but what is he saying? Maybe the message is difficult to really interpret. We know also that God speaks through the prophets and has spoken through the prophets. A couple of examples, Ezekiel was told to chop off his hair and burn it in a fire and lie on his side without moving for 1,000 days to get the message of God to God's people. Malachi came on the scene not with such bizarre uh, actions, but with many questions. Uh, Amos at the same time, he had kind of a in-your-face approach as he would speak to the people of God about the, the God of the people. And Zechariah, of course, had apocalyptic dreams and visions. And so all through these prophets, God spoke as well. But the message, the message that came from the prophets was somewhat, I'll use the word, incomprehensible. What do I mean by that? Well, not fully, fully understandable. Even the prophets didn't quite understand the fullness of the message they were giving. They knew they had to give it, but as we read in 1 Peter 1.10, says that the prophets have inquired and, verse uh, 11, searching for what? what manner of time the Spirit of Christ who is in them, indicating when he testifies beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glories that would follow. To them it was revealed. So there was this partial revelation of all of who God is and all of what God wants to say, but they didn't fully understand it either. Hang in there with me. God speaks through creation. He speaks through prophets. He also speaks through conscience. The Bible tells us that what may be known of God is manifest in them. Can you take a guess where that verse is? Romans chapter 1. Because what may be known of God was manifest in them. In other words, there's an innate, intuitive sense in every human being born into every child. There must be a God. And therefore, if there's a God, does he speak? What's he saying? Because Paul went on in verse 20 of Romans 1, For since the creation of the world, his invisible attributes are clearly seen, being understood by the things that are made, even his eternal Godhead and power, that they may be without excuse. So God speaks in our conscience, but no surprise to us today, probably, Often people want to suppress what God is seeking to say to their conscience. They, they want to kind of disregard it. Why? Because if they hear God speak, they're concerned that they may have to obey what this God has to say. 
Romans 1, 21, because although they knew God, they did not glorify him as God, nor were thankful, but became futile in their thoughts, and their foolish hearts were darkened, professing to be wise, they became what? Fools. So how are we doing so far? Speaks through creation, speaks through prophets, speaks through our conscience. In creation, beautiful creation, but still longing for something. Through the prophets, a partial message from God, not fully understandable. In our conscience, sometimes our conscience can even confuse us. And you say, well, why is that? Because humanity, God's most precious creation has an adversary. His name is the devil. And Revelations 12.10 says that he stands before God and he is the accuser of the brethren who accuses them before God day and night. That dirty devil stands before Almighty. Somehow, I don't understand the entirety of it, but I believe it. And what he is seeking to do is accuse you and accuse me before God. And our conscience gets confused. I, there's that innate intuitive born into me, and yet this conscience says, I'm, I, I could never be right before God. So, God desired and decided to come up with a solution to the first three. What was that solution? He came to speak through his son. He became one of us. As someone put it so beautifully, the message became the messenger, and the messenger was the message. Isn't that beautiful? That's what these first three verses are telling us, that in the past God spoke, but now he's speaking through his son. Something else to consider this morning as we introduce the book. Um, the word religion has an interesting connotation with it. I believe it was Marx or Lenin, one of them, that said religion is the opiate of the masses. You know what I mean by that? Marx or Lenin was looking at, at people who believed in, in a divine power as somewhat of a, a drug that just caused them to go through life and and he called it the opiate of the masses because he had no idea what the true Christian faith is about. He had no understanding of the truth of the word of God. So I don't want you to put that connotation on the word religion. Christianity is a relationship with Christ. Okay? But often terms, if you've ever gone out and talked to someone and you start talking with them about Jesus, they say, well, I'm not religious, right? Or I've never been very religious. Or, 
And there's this correlation often with the Christian faith and with the word religion. And that's what I want us to uh, hold on to for a moment here in this introduction, is that religion and the Christian faith, walking hand in hand, okay, that religion or the Christian faith have, have always been different things to different people. Is that not true? It means something different to different people. To some, the Christian faith, or religion if you will, is a, a, an inward fellowship with God, a uniting of, of a life with the creator of life. An intimate kind of walking with, and I don't mean to speak too flowery here, but, you know, it's somewhat of, a, of an inward, glorious fellowship. No doubt that's what it was to Paul. But to others, sometimes religion or the Christian faith is a standard of living and the power to reach that standard. In other words, it's, it's this whole turn to moral, beautiful truth and the power of God to live out a moral perspective. Certainly, that's what it was to Peter and to James. To even a third example, religion or the Christian faith is, someone once quoted this way, the highest satisfaction of their minds. In other words, to such an individual, it seeks and seeks and seeks again to find a way to rest in God. It's kind of this mental ascent, always ascending mentally, always trying to figure it out, understand it mentally, to they get, until they get to a point where they can rest in God, who God is. And certainly... I believe and would agree that that's what it was for John. His first chapter in his gospel is that mental ascent. In the beginning was God and God was... Brain. Should know it by heart. In the beginning was the Word and the Word was with God and the word was God. He was in the beginning with God. And all things were made through him. And without him nothing was made that was made. And in him was life. And the life was the light of men. And the light shines in the darkness. And the darkness does not comprehend it. To John it was this mental ascent of understanding who God is. And then being able to rest in that. But finally this morning, to the writer of Hebrews, the Christian faith or religion was access to God. The thing, it, it was the thing that removed the barriers, the fence in between man and divinity, sinfulness and holiness. It was, it is, to the writer of Hebrews, it is and was the door that opens the way to 
a relationship with God. Turn with me in your Bibles to the right to chapter 10 of Hebrews. I'll have you look at a verse, verse 19, supporting what I'm saying that the writer of Hebrews 10.19 reads, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiest by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way which he consecrated for us, through the veil that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart and a full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. To the writer of Hebrews, the Christian faith, the religion of the Christian faith was access to God. It was the removal of barriers. Now we don't fully know who the writer of the book is. Um, but we can, by internal evidence, come to some conclusions about the writer uh, himself. This writer would have had both a Greek background and a Hebrew or a Jewish background. Let me explain. In the period of time in which Hebrews was written and read and circulated throughout the churches, Greeks uh, had a philosophy that this life is only a, a shadow of the real. In fact, Plato and Cicero, there's documents that have statements. One, Plato said this way, quote, who, Plato was Greek, God knew from the beginning that a fair copy could never come into being apart from a fair pattern. So he put a pattern down here on earth of, of a copy of what was actually happening in heaven. Uh, the Roman statesman Cicero put it this way. He said, we have no real and lifelike likeness of real law and genuine justice. All we enjoy is a shadow and a sketch. The Greeks, they believed that life here on earth was a, a sketch or a shadow of what was really happening in the eternal or in the heavens. I found that very interesting. But the writer of Hebrews also displays throughout the book that he had a Jewish background. Now, remember to the Jew, it was a dangerous thing to come too close to God. Remember, they, they weren't supposed to get too close to God. Uh, Moses' encounter with God, Exodus 33.20, if you're taking note, God said to Moses, you cannot see my face, for no man shall see me and live. Exodus 33.20. Jacob's amazement when he had had an encounter with the angel of the Lord, right? And his, his uh, hip was touched and he walked differently from that point. He was called 
Israel from that time forward. In Genesis 32:30, Jacob called the name of the place Peniel, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved. I mean, from the beginning of the Hebrew people and nation, even throughout the giving of the law, there was this thing, you just can't get too close to God. A Manoah's terror, Judges 30, uh, 13, 23, was the same, that they had had an encounter with God and not passed. Thus, God gave what we know to be the, the law of God, the Old Testament, specifically the Pentateuch, the five, first five books, of which in Genesis and Exodus we get the, the beginning of the Hebrew people, and then in Exodus, their deliverance, and then in Leviticus, the law that God gives them in order to know how to live in relationship to this God that they're not supposed to get too close to. And God created the covenant of what we know to be the priestly covenant. It's explained in Exodus 24, 3 through 8, I'll read it for you if you're taking note. So Moses came and told the people all the words that the Lord and all the judgments and all the people answered with one voice and said, all the words which the Lord has said we will do. And Moses wrote all the words of the Lord and he rose early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain, 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. Then he sent young men of the children of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings and oxygen to the Lord. I wanted to have all these on the screen this morning, but we, we couldn't do it. And Moses took half the blood and put it on in the basin and half the blood and sprinkled on the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant and read in the hearing of all the people and all that the Lord has said we will do, they said. And Moses took the blood and he sprinkled it on the people and the blood of the covenant, he sprinkled it on the altar according to all these words. And so... The Hebrew, the Jewish background, comes vividly in color as you read through the book of Hebrews, as well as a Greek background. This author had a Jewish background. To the Greek, the book of Hebrews says, you're looking for a way past the shadows, then you'll find it in Jesus Christ. To the Hebrew, the book of Hebrews says, well, turn there with me, to the right two more pages, chapter 12, yeah, I left you in 10, right? Chapter 12, verse 2, which says, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and has sat down at the right hand the throne of God. Amen. Amen. So the book is able to speak to both cultures in which it was delivered. I found it also interesting that the book itself has had a, a challenging history. Now, you and I hold this Bible and we go, word of God, absolutely from beginning to end, most, maybe some of you are coming to that. Maybe you who are watching at home are starting to believe that. 
I embrace that this thing is eternal, inerrant, and authoritative. That it is the word of God without error. It will last forever. And it is the final authority for faith and practice in the life of every Christian. Now, we have a, a, a concise package here. But did you know that the book of Hebrews itself had a long wait before it was actually canonized? If you're taking note this morning, during what is called the Matorian canon, 100 AD, there was no mention of the book of Hebrews. Uh, during the second and third centuries, Clement and Oregon said that it was a disputed book. Tertullian, who is a great historian, mentioned that the book was a disputed book. Eusebius says it was a disputed book. Martin Luther, all the way to 1400, just wasn't sure whether it belonged in canon. It was canonized. And aren't we glad? You might say, well, then who was the book written to? We're going to look at a couple of verses throughout the book this morning to support the information. First of all, we know that it was written to a church that had been a long time established. I want you to turn backwards now with me to chapter 5, verse 12. Chapter 5, verse 12. The book was written to a church that had been uh, around a while, had been an established church. Because the author brings out, in verse 12, he says, For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again, the first principles of the oracles of God, and you have come to need milk and not solid food. Do you see that? So internal evidence supports that the book was written to a church. Oh, thanks, Rick, uh, for putting it on the screen. To a church that had been established for quite a while. Now, we also know that the the book was written to a church that had been firmly established by the writings of the apostles, although it's second generation. The receivers of this book are second generation. Turn to the left to chapter 2. Chapter 2, and I'll point you to verse 3 that says... How shall we escape if we neglect so great a salvation which at the first began to be spoken by the Lord and was confirmed to us by those who heard him? So this was a church, a body of believers that had been established on what the Lord had told those who had heard him or the apostles, firmly established on the writing of the apostles. The biggest problem often that teachers come 
against and commentators seek to answer and scholars can never fully uh, agree on is who the author is. Now there's some interesting information I found, you know, digging this up, but um, what we're going to agree on is that we don't really know who the author is. But that does not delete the impact or take anything away from the book, but I'll explain each one of these four guys up here. Tertullian really thought that Barnabas wrote this book. And you would say, why? Well, because he was a native of Cyprus, and the people of Cyprus were famous for the excellence of the Greek that they spoke. Uh, Hebrews was written in the best Greek of the New Testament. Barnabas was a Levite. Uh, that is supported by Acts chapter 4, verse 36. And of all the people in the New Testament, uh, he would have had the closest knowledge of the priestly sacrificial system. So Tertullian says, no, I'm sure Barnabas wrote it. Another support for Barnabas was that, remember what Barnabas' name meant? He was called the son of encouragement, Barnabas. And Hebrews is certainly a book that encourages the believer. Uh, you have Luther up there. Luther believes that Apollos wrote the book. And you might say, well, how did he come to that conclusion? Um, Apollos, according to the New Testament, was a Jew born in Alexandria, and he was elo an eloquent uh, teacher. He knew the gospel. Of course, he was brought to a greater understanding of it by Priscilla and Aquila. Um, As a cultured Alexandrian, the person who wrote Hebrews was certainly someone like Apollos uh, in thought and in background. This third name there is an interesting one. Uh, his name was Adolf von Harnack. He was a, a German scholar. And he thought that maybe Aquila and Priscilla wrote the book but that it would never be received because uh, of Priscilla's involvement and how in the Hebrew culture the man took preeminence, a woman was not to be speaking, and uh, especially as it related in uh, the teaching of, of the church. Their house in Rome was a church itself, uh, Romans chapter 16, verse 5, and Harnack thought that uh, that's why the letter begins with no greeting and why the writer's name has vanished because the main author of Hebrews uh, would have been also a woman and that was not allowed in their culture. But what we can agree on is that some commentators see the authorship as even possibly including the Apostle Paul. Commentators sometimes arrive at uh, similar language, 
not clinically the same, but similar language. Uh, all of that to say, we really don't know. But it would be important for us this morning, with all that information that I've given you, turn back to chapter 1, to remind us of the central theme of the book of Hebrews. And you may have that up there, Rick, I don't know, but the central theme of the book of Hebrews is the superiority of Jesus Christ. We read it in those first three verses. I'll read it again because it is powerful. God, who at various times and in various ways spoke in time past to the fathers by the prophets, has in these last days spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the worlds, who being the brightness of his glory and the express image of his person and upholding all things by the word of his power, when he had by himself purged our sins, sat down at the right hand of the majesty on high. The superiority of Jesus Christ, superior to angels. I don't know if you, how long you may have been walking with the Lord, uh, how long you may be calling yourself a Christian, but we've gone through a season in Western Christianity when angel worship began to uh, rise itself up. And the next thing you know, there were films about angels and everyone was talking about what angels can do. And I don't know if you remember that period of time or not, but I mean, even Hollywood bought into it where there was, you know, series created about angels because people were intrigued by the idea of angels and even started to elevate the position of an angel that is a, a spiritual being created by none other than God. Jesus Christ, superior to angels. The theme of the book of Hebrews, Jesus Christ, superior to the law of Moses. You read all the way through the, the Old Testament, from Genesis to Malachi, and what we get is nuggets of, of beautiful history of the, the nation of Israel, the people who had been, my goodness, given the privilege of carrying the oracles of God through, through time and history. And yet, Christ is superior to the law that they bring. Amazing. Throughout the Old Testament, not only do we have a history of the nation of the people of Israel, but we have the prophets 
who spoke to this nation of people about the God that they were supposed to represent in the world and the law that God gave them to obey in order to be a right representative. But what they found is that the sacrificial system of an earthly priest was, it lacked. It couldn't bring them into the fullness of unmasked fellowship and unbroken relationship with God because the moment the sacrifice was made, the blood was sprinkled on the altar, they would walk away from the tabernacle and find that sin was in their heart again. And so the prophets would come and they would say, Obey God. God loves you. You're his people. A great message, but it couldn't bring the people that they spoke to into the fullness of the relationship that God wants to have with them. And we live in a time right now, 2022, we're in uh, April, about to head into May. We live in a time known as... Uh, the, the time of the Gentiles, the dispensation of the Gentiles, where, where God, who also the Old Testament, had his attention on, on Israel and the people of Israel. And in the coming of Christ, he came into his own, and his own received him not. God has turned his attention to the Gentile world. And when that time comes to a close... God will again turn his attention in that, those final uh, years to the Hebrew again. And so this letter, the superiority of Jesus Christ to angels, to the law, to prophets, invites you and I into a greater understanding of what it is we say we believe. It will, as you walk with me through these weeks ahead, it will carve a deeper understanding of, in, in you and I of who the person of Jesus is, his power, his work, his desire for your lives and mine. So as I said, hold on to your hat. It's going to be a deep dive into the deep things of God. If Romans is is the Magna Carta of the Christian faith, then Hebrews becomes the architectural drawing of what it means to walk with Christ. And I trust that he will reveal himself afresh as we look to him, looking to Jesus, the author and the finisher of our faith. God speaks, and he's speaking right now through his son, saying to you and to me today, come, draw close. You know I'm real. Seek me, and you will find me. Shall we pray?
Lord, we thank you for your word this morning. Such a delight. Thank you for the truth. You promised that we would know the truth and it would make us free. And that, Lord, this morning we are reading about the fact that you have chosen to speak in these last days through Jesus. And Lord, we want to hear what you have to say. So as we go this week, wanting to know which way to turn, which way to look, who to listen to, Lord, we ask you to continue to show yourself strong on our behalf. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.